You are listening to Lilac Wine, the podcast. On the last episode, Billy and Robert are aboard the SS Sydney drinking some beers when they are attacked by a group of strange men. If you haven't listened to that episode or other previous episodes, please do so. I'm releasing this novel in progress one chapter at a time, and I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. Chapter 15 Billy was certain that Clifford Jackman would have killed him. He had promised to do that before while holding a knife just below his eye behind a saloon in East Dubuque a few months earlier. He had avoided East Dubuque ever since, avoided most public appearances outside Lily Springs, actually. He never even suspected that Clifford might have been on the excursion boat. When Robert arrived, he had forgotten all about his ordeal and became swept up in the excitement of having somebody new in town. When he had seen Clifford in the ballroom, he tried desperately to conceal himself, afraid for what might happen if he had been recognized. He didn't want to make it too obvious to Robert, however. Even so, he then spent the entire evening looking over his shoulder and fearing for what lurked in the many shadowed corners of the boat. And it was from one of those dark corners near the stern where Billy had been grabbed and thrown against the rails by Pete, one of Clifford's thugs. He was quite familiar with him because it was Pete who had held him before when Clifford whispered a threat into his ear back in East Dubuque. If I ever see you again with my brother, I will kill you, he had said the tip of the knife right below his right eyelid, piercing the skin and drawing a little bead of blood. In fact, if I ever see you again, ever, I will kill you. Do you understand? Billy couldn't talk. He stammered. I'll take that as a yes. Clifford removed the knife, wiping the blade on Billy's shoulder. Now we're going to give you a little taste of what it might be like to die. And with that, Pete proceeded to beat the shit out of him in the darkness behind the saloon, leaving him soiled in his own piss, face down in the mud. The situation on the Sydney was not too different. In fact, Billy had known it was Pete who had grabbed him even before he saw his face or heard his voice. There was a familiarity to the way Pete's hands dug into his shoulders and to the way he breathed as he pushed him into the dark corner against the railing. Lord knows what would have happened if Robert hadn't shown up. Billy waited at the bow, nervously looking to the large doors that led to the grand staircase. He didn't know what to do. Terrified by what had transpired on the ship, he had run as fast as he could and just assumed that Robert was behind him. By the time he got to the bow, he knew that something must have happened. 
Waiting for the dock to get closer, he prayed that Robert would appear. He even imagined the two of them jumping together like a modern-day Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. He imagined them laughing as the boat pulled away, watching their villains angrily curse them from the deck. When he heard the whistles and muffled shouts, he knew that Robert wasn't going to make it. And that's when he jumped. Didn't think twice about it, actually. He just needed to get away. The jump was fueled by fear and practically instinctual. He almost didn't make it as he stumbled on his landing and nearly fell into the water. The black smoke from the steamer swirled around him like angry clouds in a breeze. He felt ashamed. And for a brief moment, considered trying to jump back to the boat. And then, Robert appeared. Clutching his side, Robert leaned over the rail just as the bow cleared the dock. Realizing that he just missed the jump, he proceeded to run the length of the boat along the main deck, knocking people out of the way. He was able to get to the center of the boat in no time. He climbed over the railing and stood on the lip of the deck, which was not more than a few inches above the waterline. Come on, Billy yelled. Jump! Billy held out his hand and jogged along the pier. The boat was a good eight feet away or so, and Robert no longer had the benefit of a running leap. Billy stopped at the edge. You can do it! Robert inhaled deeply and pushed off the railing. There was a loud splash. Robert missed the dock by several feet. Immediately, he began flailing his arms, the wake of the boat pushing him forward. Billy reached out and grabbed a hand and pulled. The steamer whistled in the night as Robert grasped the pier. He didn't have the energy to lift himself out of the water. He let go of Billy's hand and rested his head on the cold wood, his body bobbing in the wake, no doubt, like one of the bottles he had thrown over the side. Are you okay? asked Billy nervously. Robert looked up, his right eye swollen shut. Thanks for waiting. I thought you were right behind me. Robert grunted and lowered his head, resting his forehead back on the wood. His head was pounding. His ribs were throbbing. Realizing that the motion of the water was making him sick, he reached up a hand. Help me out, will you? Billy reached down with both hands and pulled. With much struggle, Robert's water-soaked body flopped onto the hard dock. He turned over on his back, staring at the dark sky with his good eye. Billy sat down next to him. I'm sorry, said Billy. I just wanted this night to be perfect. It was, replied Robert after a moment, until I got the shit kicked out of me. He sat up, instinctively grasping his side. Is it broken? Billy asked. He sounded on the verge of tears. I don't think so. Robert ran his hand down his side. His ribs were tender, very tender, but the pain was not excruciating to the touch. Badly bruised, but not broken. The wet clothes, combined with the river breeze, numbed his entire body, and all he could feel was a dull throbbing. Probably feel worse tomorrow, he thought. They sat silently for a moment. Billy picked at the deck wood with a finger and glanced occasionally to Robert, who fixed his gaze downriver. The SS Sydney was long gone, but the faint sound of a steam whistle wafted through the evening. If it wasn't for your friend Martin, I wouldn't have made it, Robert said, breaking the silence. What happened? 
I don't even know, Billy. I was thrown to the ground, kicked a couple of times. And the next thing I know, I feel these hands picking me up. It's Martin, and he tells me to run. And I run like hell. Robert spit into the river, the faint taste of blood on his tongue. He felt his face, running his hands over his eyes and mouth. At least I have all my teeth, he added with a forced laugh. He turned towards Billy and grinned. I must be a sight, huh? Billy looked deep into Robert's eye for a brief moment. You look... He didn't quite know what to say. He knew what he wanted to say, but just couldn't bring himself to say it. Instead, he smiled broadly in return. Like shit. Robert laughed and gave him a good-hearted shove. Yeah, no thanks to you, by the way. He turned back toward the Mississippi and inhaled deeply. What was that all about on the boat? He asked after a few moments. Billy's smile quickly disappeared. I don't know, he replied, almost a whisper. Who were those fellas? I told you, I don't know. Billy was suddenly all defensive. Come on, Billy, I'm just trying to figure out what happened, Billy stood. I don't want to talk about it, all right? They sure seem to know you. Look, I never seen those guys in my life, okay? I think they must have mistaken me for someone else. Billy was visibly agitated. He couldn't look Robert in the eye. Instead, he nervously traced the veins of the wood with the tip of his shoe. There was an obvious cold silence, and Billy felt that Robert could see through his lies. Come on, he finally said. Let's get out of here. He held out a hand and helped Robert to his feet. Billy, I think a large sigh cut him off. I'm tired, Robert. Let's not talk anymore. He turned and walked away, disappearing into the darkness. Robert called out as he staggered down the dock. Billy, stop. It took a moment for him to catch up. Look, I stuck my neck out for you and was almost killed in the process. I think I have a right to know what's going on. There's nothing going on, Robert. He stopped and turned. Thanks for rescuing me. Is that what you want to hear? That's not what I meant. I just want... All right! Billy was yelling now. You want to know? Those guys tried to kill me in East Dubuque a few months ago. One of them held a knife to my face. Then they beat the shit out of me. I thought I was going to die. A tear rolled down his face. They threatened to kill me if they ever saw me again. Why? I don't know! Billy yelled, trying desperately to hold back the tears, but they came... Anyway, I don't know, he repeated softly into his hands, turning his back on Robert, his shoulders rising and falling with each sob. Robert placed an arm on Billy's shoulder. I'm sorry, Billy, was all he could say. The sobbing continued for what seemed like several minutes. Robert attempted to comfort Billy. He wrapped an arm clumsily around his back and patted him gently on the shoulder. It's all right, he told him several times in the gentlest voice he could muster. Billy turned into Robert and nestled his head into Robert's chest. He knew he had lost control. Never did he want to appear this way in front of Robert. This was not what he had planned for the evening, and it seemed to him that the night couldn't get any worse. He felt embarrassed. He felt childish. He took a deep breath and held it for a few moments. He could smell the Mississippi River in Robert's shirt and could feel each beat of his heart. 
Finally, Billy looked up, his face streaked with tears. He wiped his nose with the back of his hand. I'm sorry, Robbie. I don't know what's wrong with me. Too many beers, I guess. It's okay, Billy, Robert replied. He slapped him on the back. Let's get out of here. I'm a little cold. Billy managed to smile, and the two of them walked quietly in the darkness over the railroad tracks and up the road to the center of town. The entire way, Billy waited for further questions, but Robert was silent. Outside of Art's house, they said their goodbyes. It was awkward, neither knowing exactly what to say. Billy turned to leave and then stopped. Robbie, I'm sorry about... Robert held up his hand. Two things, Billy. First of all, don't call me Robbie, all right? The only one who did that was my mom. And two, you don't need to apologize. It was an interesting evening, that's for sure. Great, really. Until I got beat up, that is. He took a step forward and gave Billy a good-hearted rap on the upper arm. And if there is ever anything you want to talk about, you know where I am. Okay? Billy nodded. All right, continued Robert. I need some sleep. I just hope those damn dogs haven't taken over the bed. He turned into the walkway leading up to the front porch. Billy stood and watched as Robert opened the door and disappeared into the darkness of the house. Dogs began to bark, and Billy smiled as he heard the muffled sounds of curses coming from Robert as he attempted to navigate through the pack. Down, Teddy, down, he heard him exclaim. Billy stood outside for several minutes. The dogs had quieted down, and no doubt Robert had already found his bed. Letting out a large sigh, Billy shoved his hands into his pockets and turned down the street. The next morning, Billy awoke to the unfamiliar sound of an engine sputtering and backfiring. He was accustomed to all sorts of mechanical sounds, and he could usually identify the make and model of all of the automobiles and tractors he and his father worked on just by the sounds of the engines. But he couldn't quite place this sound. It certainly wasn't something currently at the shop. He opened an eye. The sun pierced the curtains and he could tell that it was late morning. His head throbbed, the smell of a missed breakfast lingering in the air. Billy! His father called from outside as the engine sputtered to a halt. Pulling himself from his bed, he gazed through the window. A motorcycle stood at the curb. It was a bright red V-twin 1914 Indian, its bright white tires darkened by the dirt of the road. He should have known that one, for Edison Smithfield, the barber, owned one back in the summer of 15. Notoriously loud, Eddie's Indian became the bane of the town, until one day Eddie found his prized possession with a suspiciously broken chain. Although Billy had fixed the chain rather easily, the motorcycle disappeared completely a few days later. Most people in town believed the bike ended up in the Mississippi, but no one ever talked about the deed. No charges were filed, nor did anyone ever come forward with information. The town was quiet once again, and Eddie went back to riding his foot-powered bicycle, which he still parked every morning during the summer outside of his shop on the town triangle. Billy then noticed the rider of the Indian, a young courier with a familiar Western Union insignia on his helmet. Billy cursed under his breath. 
a Sunday delivery. That was never a good sign. His father called out again and Billy quickly dressed and without putting on his shoes, raced outside. The courier was not much older than himself and for a Western Union courier, he was rather old, early 20s, Billy guessed. Western Union often hired young boys as their message carriers. Billy had often seen ads in boys' life when he was growing up and even wanted to join the fleet at one time. But there was not much call for telegram delivery boys in Lily Springs, and Dubuque was too far away to make the trip daily. You William Miles? the courier asked. Billy nodded and signed for the telegram. Haven't been out here before, he continued, handing Billy the familiar golden envelope. Lived in Dubuque all my life. Didn't even know this town existed. He stood there, expecting a tip, but Billy concentrated on the envelope, tearing it open as he turned towards the house. His heart sank as he saw the sender. Streckfis Line, St. Louis. Billy's father handed the courier a few coins and said something then to Billy, but Billy didn't hear. He read the large black letters and knew that things just got worse. Antics costly last night. Police investigation in Dubuque. Sydney grounded. Burnside fired. You are no longer welcome aboard any Streckfist steamer until further notice. Streckfist Steamers, Inc. With a loud sputter, the Indian started up again. Billy didn't know what to think. He reread the telegram. Everything was his fault. Everything. Billy, said his father, walking up behind him. What is it? Nothing, Billy replied, crumbling up the telegram into a ball in his fist. Absolutely nothing. that was chapter 15 of Lilac Wine. It's the first chapter to not be in either Robert's or Abelia's perspective. I was kind of throughout the novel, you know, uh, going back and forth between those two main characters and then Billy came along. That's really the interesting thing about writing. I sit at my keyboard to write and I know the direction of the story. I know my two main characters, and when I need other characters, I just kind of make them up on the spot, and then I write them down. I have uh, in a pad of paper, or should I say, uh, on sheets of paper everywhere in files, different people that I populated Lily Springs with. Billy appears in the first chapter. He is there in the middle of town. And back then, I didn't necessarily think he was going to play a big role. And then this happens. The whole incident aboard the boat. I wanted the boat incident to be special. And I wanted something to happen to Billy. And so I began writing Billy a certain way. When I first started the novel, I had no intention of doing that, but it just kind of wrote itself. And Billy is now one of my favorite characters. And we have a sense about 
Billy at this point. I mean, we assume he's an LGBTQ character and um, that must have been a very difficult thing back in 1917. Or at least at this point, we're not sure if he is. He, he may be just targeted. Um, we're going to find out more. Actually, another incident is going to happen later in the book. But it, it's, it's at this point that Billy becomes a full-fledged person in the narrative. And uh, he's going to play a very important role. And so this chapter, it, it, this whole segment of them on the boat, these last three chapters involved a lot of research. A lot of research in regard to, to slurs and attitudes towards sexuality, uh, especially homosexuality back in 1917. It involved a lot with the SS Sydney, of course. Burnside is a made-up character. The SS Sydney is a real boat. The Streckfist steam line, real, um, real steam line. And, you know, I should probably check. Uh, yeah, I've been throwing their name around. I'm not sure if they're still around, if they are still a thing. <laughs> I just thought of that now. I should probably find out because uh, it'd be interesting. Um, I don't know if I could use them in this way. I, I assume I can. Um, yeah, that's the thing really about this novel that um, I'm not quite sure of the legal ramifications of using all of these actual people. Fate Marable was a real person, you know, the Sydney and, uh, you know, the Dubuque Music House where Abelia gets her Victrola records uh, and so forth. So uh, Anheuser-Busch with Bevo, although they don't make Bevo anymore, but, you know, Bevo was an Anheuser-Busch product. So I'm kind of curious when this thing gets done, what that's all going to mean. So this this was done in, in Billy's perspective. And I, I kind of like doing that. I like picking a character and kind of telling the story a little bit through their eyes. I don't like using first person narrative too much. And so it gets a little bit more complex when you kind of switch perspectives here. But I like that. I think it kind of adds more to the story. And uh, so, so Billy now one of the three main characters. In the next chapter, we are going back to Robert because the incident on the Sydney is going to bring the police chief to his house because uh, rumors fly in a small town and people are going to start wondering about this young man from Chicago. Yeah. So be sure to join us again next week. Thanks for listening. I am Bruce Gianni. If you get a chance, go to lilacwinenovel.com. I have set up a form so you could sign up for our email list, our newsletter. I'm not going to be emailing you all the time. I will never sell your email to anybody. It's just, just me in this operation here. But what I want to do is reward my listeners. So uh, this summer I'm going to be having shirts made and uh, I'm going to be giving them away. So uh, you could have your very own Lilac Wine, the podcast t-shirts. I am working on a logo right now. And in fact, 
I'm going to have you, the listener, pick what logo we should use for the shirts. The shirts will be lilac with the lilac wine logo on it. So go to lilacwinenovel.com to sign up for our newsletter. And again, thank you for listening. Uh, If you feel uh, like it, I would really appreciate a review. Uh, You have a question or comment, please go to our website uh, and ask that question. I would love to read answers and interact uh, more with my listeners, with you. Thanks for listening. I am Bruce Janu. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.